My friends, it's a delight to be with you in worship this morning. Today marks the third installment in our sermon series called Put Down Your Cell Phones, You Just May Miss It. We've been reflecting on these post-Easter passages with this notion that life happens at a very distracting rate with many different devices, what Sufi and Stevens calls our futile devices. And there are things vying for our attention so much so that we can attune our ears and our eyes and our expectations to them in ways that stop us rather unconsciously from sensing the divine presence around us, from the divine spark as it passes through our field of walking as God is always present and speaking. I know that we need sermon series like this because it happened to me again this morning. I was driving south on Peachtree Street, actually it was Peachtree Road in Buckhead, and a car, a rather large SUV, was swerving in and out of the lane, almost hitting me, and I sped up, I have to admit some fleshliness here, I sped up to get to where I could see the driver and the driver could see me, and with all the vim and vigor of an old man staring and yelling and waving his fist as a cloud, at a cloud, I looked over to, to give them the symbol of my face and show them how I'm judging them for their uh, reckless driving. And then I see it, the person's on their cell phone. Oh. Is there anything that makes you more angry in all the world than that? Well, this morning there was nothing more in the world that made me angrier than that. And then God almost threw this little distraction said, look this way, and I look this way, and right just north of here is that Chick-fil-A, you know the one just north of the church on Peachtree Street? The Chick-fil-A is absolutely torn down. It's a pile of rubble. It's rubble upon rubble. There's nothing there but the rubble and the sign, the old marquee. And the marquee said, closed for remodeling. Which I think is hilarious. Could there be any more under or overly stated thing in all the world? Closed for remodeling? Well, no, duh. If I had a camera, I would have stopped and taken a photo. Well, I belly laughed, and I thought, well, that poor person on their cell phone missed the humor that's right there on the other side of their car window. And that's really how it is with us. We miss so much of what God is doing in our world because we're otherwise distracted. Let's do our best to tune ourselves back to God. Close your eyes with me. Take a few breaths. Breathe in. Exhale the air from your lungs. Take another deep breath in. This time exhale all the air from your lungs. Breathe in the breath of God. God, who through your Holy Spirit has made yourself known to us in these days, speak to us through your Holy Scriptures. Let us not miss out on all the glory, all the grandeur, all the divine appointments that circle our lives. Let us feel your touch. 
Whether anyone else knows it or not, you and I know that without you I can do nothing. So send your spirit now, and everywhere my voice may be heard, that the Holy Scriptures would illuminate, freshen, and bolden us as we are pilgrims on your pathway. It's in Jesus' holy and matchless name we pray, and God's people say together, Amen. Over the years that I've aged, I have assessed the concept of taking walks differently from one age to the next. When I was young, I think taking walks, I thought of them as they were rather boring sorts of things. I'll never forget being a teenager in February and being uh, invited to go down to visit my grandma and grandparents down in Florida. And when you're from the Midwest in February, going to Florida seems like you're about to enter into paradise. Sunshine, palm trees, perpetual beaches, Mickey Mouse ears, oh, to be sun-kissed on the beach. But when I got to Florida to visit, I didn't realize I was really going to God's waiting room. My grandmother lived in a retirement community, which was... Fun. There were golf carts everywhere, and my great-grandmother wanted to talk with me about the migration patterns of the sandhill crane. So to get out of that exciting conversation, I decided to take a walk, and there I was taking a walk, thinking about how boring this is. We flew from Florida, uh, Illinois down to Florida in the dead of winter. I don't know if you know what it's like in Illinois in February, but it felt like summertime in Florida that day, that time. And I just wanted to have a little excitement, but nevertheless, I was stuck. And so I walked, and I was bored, so bored, and... Um, negative about everything that was around me, that I didn't see the beauty of the flora and fauna and how it was unique and different to my own. I didn't allow the sun to kiss my skin in a way that brought my innards to a smile. And I certainly did not breathe in freshly that warm air. I just felt bad about myself as I was on a boring, mundane walk. I learned later on in life, though, that walks have a great tradition in Western intellectual culture. Much ink has been spilled on pages about the power of taking walks. Charles Darwin used to like to take long walks just to think. Nietzsche, the philosopher, used to take long walks to consider his philosophy. Oh, even the great Christian writer Chesterton, who was absent-minded at best, he liked to take long walks, so much so that he would forget where he was going in London, and he would telegraph his wife in the middle of the day and say, Honey, I'm not really sure where I'm supposed to be. And she would write back, Just come home. Just come home. So lost was he in thought in his walk. It was the great scientist Einstein who said that if you want your work to appear more manageable and, and smaller, go away from it. Take a walk. Go away. And the big problem of your work will shrink in size. Yes, walks have been credited with great observations and insight in the human uh, 
pursuit of knowledge. Most of you realize or have heard that in August I almost died uh, two different times within about a week. And I went through an incredible health journey for myself. And when I got out of the hospital and came home, uh, I couldn't really walk. I had to walk with a cane or with great assistance. And I knew that at some point I had to start putting one foot in front of the other to build up my strength. It was part of the whole therapy that I had to undertake to get better. And I live in this nice little neighborhood, you know, it's got no outlet, it's a little circle. There's not a lot of cars. If you go around the loop once, you're about a third of, the mile, of a mile, and it, it's beautiful and gentle, and the neighbors are nice, and I set out trying to take my walk. As I saw neighbors go by, I would just smile and hold my breath, because <gasps> I was out of breath. I didn't want them to see me gasping, walking a very short distance. As I'd come up toward the end, toward my house, up a gentle, rolling little hill, I remember thinking to myself, because there is a vanity in me, I still haven't gotten rid of all my sins. There's still a vanity in me. I didn't want the people to see me weak. And so I stood there thinking to myself, I'm not sure how to make it up this hill without stopping, without bending over and putting my hands on my knees, without gasping for air. So I, I, I thought to look up at the sky hoping that if anyone saw me, they would think, oh, look at Jared, he is so deep. He's admiring the sky and the birds. And the whole time I'm just sitting there going, dear God, don't let me fall over. Dear God, don't let me fall over. Walks aren't boring when you can't walk. Walks aren't mundane when things stand in the way of one foot in front of another. Today we read a scripture about a famous walk called the Walk to Emmaus. This is an Easter text, a resurrection text. Some disciples are walking along wondering about all the wonderfully strange and bizarre and dark things that have just happened to them. Their teacher the one who they had a lot of high hopes on. He, he was killed by the state and thrown unceremoniously into a tomb. And then there's rumors and whispers of his absence in that tomb. And as they walk, what they experience is a stranger. A stranger begins to walk with them. It says that he opens the scriptures. Now, don't think New Testament here. This is what we call the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament or what I prefer to call the First Testament. And it's not as though there's a pocket Bible. This is just talking through the text, the great text of the people of God, explaining to them all that was going on in those texts in a light of what was happening right then and now in that moment of this death and this absence in the tomb. And with that, we have a story that gestures that a walk can be more than just mundane. In my healing process, I had to take on that which was uh, spiritual and psychological just as much as physical. And part of my spiritual pursuit of he healing during this time is to see a spiritual director. Spiritual direction is when you sit with someone who's been trained in the way of 
Ignatius or Benedict or something like that, but it's a, someone who's trained in holy listening. They listen and help you to see how God is presently moving in your life. So I still go and I sit in a room with a gentleman who's been trained and I can sense the Holy Spirit with him. We're in this church and he sets up a chair for me, a chair for him, and then a chair for the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we just look at each other quietly. It's awkward, isn't it? Just to look someone in the eyes quietly. But it's real. Sometimes we pray out loud for each other whilst looking at each other. If you want to be afraid of the inside interior person across from you, look them in the eye and pray for them. It will send you a holy fright of which you all deserve to go through. So he says to me as he looks me in the eye after a long bout of silence, he says, what do you like to do for you to, to just kind of get out away from all the stuff of life and the worries and the, and, and the touch with death and all the uncertainty and all the pills and all the skin, uh, your skin coloring and all this stuff that bothers you. So I like to go on walks, because at that time I started walking a little bit better. And I'd put together some playlists on my phone and I would listen to some songs. And I already told you when I came back from that um, convalescing that, that I put together these playlists that were filled with songs that had a lot of good rhythms to them and a lot of good messages. But basically, just let me be sort of cheesy and inspirational. Songs that make me feel myself a little bit. Songs that could put a pep in my step. Songs that made me feel like a fighter about to enter in the ring because Lord knows I felt like I'd been on the mat and I needed to get up. And he says, yeah, yeah, okay, do that. I want you to do that, but I want you to take out the music and I want you to look around and I want you to be present where you are. And this time when you go on your walk, I want you to imagine. Imagine, if you will, Jesus, a very, he said, a very earthy Jesus. I'll never forget that. Imagine a very earthy Jesus, you know, Jesus of blood and sweat, tears. Imagine Jesus is walking with you and see what happens. And I'll confess that I, I didn't do it for a while for fear of what might happen. One day I was walking, listening to a song, and I got, I'm feeling myself, you know, I'm feeling the power. I'm feeling my inner power, my inner strength. I'm going to overcome. I'm feeling it. You ever feel it, friends? And I'm strutting around Chastain Park. And I remember the words. I take out those earbuds. And I look over and I see Jesus right here. It's very earthy Jesus. And he looks at me and he laughs at me. You know, kind of like to laugh at you, to pick a little fun at you. You ever been caught singing in your car, lip singing by somebody? who's parked next to you, they kind of get a little giggle. That was the kind of thing Jesus did that day. But he didn't, want, he didn't hurt my feelings. Took his elbow and kind of ribbed me a little, and it was the feeling I felt of having an older brother put their arm around you and just kind of do one of those on your head, and I could feel something profound. With that subtle shift in the imagination, my walk was not mundane. My walk opened up 
There is a key to unlock the meaning of the walk itself, the meaning of the space and the air in the life that I was breathing, that all of it, absolutely every ounce of it was divinely donated and given and teeming with meaning from God. The disciples are experiencing this with Jesus, but at this point in time, they don't know that it's Jesus. There's something of continuity about the resurrected body, but there's also something unique. There's still a difference in that body of Jesus. Theologians and people have speculated that this is just the difference of what glorified body is. Resurrected body is different but same, to quote Mr. Miyagi. Different but same. There is a similar nature to the body of Jesus, but something not quite the same. And it isn't until they eat. We have a painting of this right here in the baptistry where Jesus is breaking bread with his disciples. Something mundane and simple and perhaps boring like bread is broken. And only in its brokenness do they have a sense and a knowledge that they're with Jesus. Now we could say a lot about bread here this reality that we all have. I think we could say a lot about bread, but ultimately what we're talking about here is simply food. Can you think of anything more simple in all the world than food? Yet paradoxically, it's so simple to the human being that it's also the thing that we make the most artistic. It's the thing we spend the most time on. It's the thing that we make social graces about. It's so simple, yet it's often divine. It's weird how things work like that. And they get the chance not just to eat alone, but to eat together. My family and I, during dinner, sometimes like to sit out in the patio and watch this show called Alone on the History Channel. Each episode or each season has 10 contestants dropped into the, some Canadian wilderness, and they only have 10 tools, and the cameras that they have are, are run by themselves. They don't have camera people there watching them. Basically, there's nothing to protect them unless they hit a button that's like a panic button, and that button will send help, but once they get that help, they're done. They lose. They don't win. And almost every season that we've ever seen, as it goes on, these people who are trying to eke out a survival in a very harsh landscape, it's not very cozy. They're counting the calorie deficit, how much they would expend in the energy to go hunting for food, to go fishing for food, to go foraging for food, versus how many calories they're bringing in per day. Because when you get to survival and subsistence, we're talking about thinking about food on this very small level. It's now about eking out another day. One of the seasons, there's a former missionary who has a haul. He catches fresh Atlantic salmon and Dungeness crabs. And as he's cooking all this, he's, he's devouring it, and he's tasting delicious. It's not tasting delicious because he's really, really, really hungry. It's delicious because it's fresh Atlantic salmon out of where? The Atlantic. It's Dungeness crab. Need I say more, church? 
He's got himself a boil going. He said, this is like one of the best meals I've ever eaten in my life. And then his note of joy turns to a little bit of sadness because of his next reflection. Yes, I needed this meal. Yes, this food is good, but it is nothing without people. Without people to share it with. I want you to think of our eating for a moment. In the last century, wasn't it sold to us that the lap of luxury was for TV trays? Wasn't that sold to at least your moms and dads or your grandparents that you could have prepackaged meals in the freezer? Gelatin. You know what that's made of, don't you? But then you get to dump it out on what? On, on a TV tray so that you can sit in front of the what and eat? The TV. Oh, there's a lot to distract us on the television, but today we are more sophisticated than we were last century, aren't we? Boy, we are a lot smarter. Instead of sitting down and watching TV as a family unit, what we like to do now is have two by three inch devices separate all around a table. Now I get to watch mine, you get to watch yours. I like to make my talk tick videos. That was a joke, I know it's TikTok. <laughs> you like to watch your YouTubes. I know too many of you watch too much news. But maybe we're not just on our devices, maybe we're eating in our own rooms. Or what's worse, in our car, or even worse still, the only time we eat together is when we put it under the category of that word, business lunch. Ugh. We must eat to live. And in the story, we don't just have a boring walk shown for the glory that it can be, and we don't just have a mundane meal showing that it's more. There's more going on below the surface. It reminded me of Alexander Schmemann, this Russian Orthodox thinker who wrote in France in the last century. And he wrote this little bit that I find so beautiful. Man is what he eats. With that statement, the German materialist philosopher Feuerbach thought he put an end to all idealistic speculations about human nature. This guy named Feuerbach is really the intellectual background for all of Karl Marx. Follow me. Feuerbach and Marx after him said the world's just material. It's just stuff. It's just stuff. A human being is reducible to a bunch of, of matter and stuff, and you're just a, a, a fancy computer. That's all you are. There's no idealistic. There's no idea that predates you. There is no place that life comes from. It's just this brute stuff. And if that's the case, then Feuerbach's right. We are what we eat. In fact, however, he was expressing without knowing it the most religious idea of man, writes Shemaimon. For long before Feuerbach, the same definition of man was given by the Bible. In the biblical story of creation, man is presented, first of all, as a hungry being and the whole of the world as his food. 
Second, only to the direction to propagate and have dominion over the earth. According to the author of the first chapter of Genesis, is God's instruction to men to eat of the earth. Behold, I have given you all this to eat, so on. Man must eat in order to live. He must take the world into his body and transform it into himself, into his flesh, into his blood. He indeed is that which he eats. And the whole world is presented as one embracing banquet there for man. We are what we eat in the height of all eating. That every meal for a Christian is a bit of a precursor for is a holy meal of bread and wine. It is a meal that makes us more than just ourselves. It's a meal from outside of ourselves that draws us outside of ourselves into the depths of the divine embrace. It is a meal that reminds us that we are meant for oh so much more. Friends, we can see the world as boring and mundane. We can put all kinds of roadblocks up to distract us and to to guide our attention. And we do that. And so the only exciting thing we can think about in the world is the, the world of human creation, technology. Just yesterday, I got on that chat GPT. Anybody gotten on to chat GPT yet? You know, you've heard the stories about artificial intelligence that you basically can uh, put in there, like, uh, write me a paper on uh, the history and usage of wood in pews and churches in England. And it'll supposedly write you a research paper, and it will go and search up all this stuff. I was thoroughly unimpressed with it from one perspective and impressed in another. It is, in fact, a, a really incredible thing that humans can come up with algorithms and tools like this that can suss out tons of searchable data. But what I put in there was, tell me about the road to Emmaus. No, I wasn't trying to cheat on the sermon. I just wanted to see what it would say. And it basically gave me the who, the why, the how. It gave me fairly standard information about the road to Emmaus, but you know what it really missed? It missed spirit and it missed blood. It missed the divine spirit that is present in our lives. It, that spirit that, that's with us at different places and at different points in our journey as we walk our holy pilgrimages where we face the life that we face and the Spirit of God speaking through us and to us right then in those unique places, you can't just get through an algorithm. It's unique and it missed flesh. It missed the blood. It missed the passion. Because when I read the story today, I don't just read about a walk, and I don't just read about bread, and I don't just read about a realization, oh, hey, man, that's really neat that that was Jesus. No, what hopped off the page and hit me in the face was these disciples after having walked with him and heard the scriptures new and having eaten with him and seen there's something more to bread. And then after he disappears, 
They say this to each other. They say, we're not our hearts burning when he spoke to us. It's there in the passage. We're not our hearts burning when he spoke to us. Chat GPT doesn't care about your heart burning. What does it mean to have your heart on fire for the gospel? Oh, to note that God is always there and God is not silent. To note that God has given all things breath, all things value. To note that God has undergirded the universe by God's own divine creative energies. To note that God made all things by, through, and for Christ. That means the imprint of the divine is on everything. To know these things and to believe these things is to see the world as utterly enchanted, teeming with divine life and excitement. Profundity is everywhere for you. It's right here. It's right there. It's right there. And I can drink it in, and so can you. And when you know that, and you know that God has made himself known to you in those things, and mostly so in the person of Jesus Christ, your heart will be set ablaze in the gospel. Is your heart on fire for it, people? Or... Do we just do the churchy thing because it's the thing to do and we want to go into the world with it with ideological tools to be other people's ideological points of view? What would it mean to let your heart burn with a divine touch? See it that way. And I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, a life worth living.